HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. live broadcast on heritageradionetwork.com. Stay tuned for a live broadcast on heritageradionetwork.com. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Today we'd like to send a special thank you to the following restaurants for supporting No Goat Left Behind, Sambar and Mapesh. Show your support at these restaurants by ordering one of the menu items featuring goat. Goat is the most eaten protein in the entire world, yet in the U.S. we import most of our goat. Our dairy farms are forced to kill some male goats at birth because there's no market for them. Help make a change. Support No Goat Left Behind. Okay, it's a rainy Thursday in Brooklyn, and you are turned into the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report, and we are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Talking about goats today, I want to thank Jake for, or Jack for the shout-out on the No Goat Left Behind project. Jack, Jake, who are you? Who is this mystery man? It's a little Wizard of Oz behind the curtain over there. Um, no goat behind kind of wrapping up our last uh, group of animals went to the slaughterhouse this past week and we'll be hitting restaurants um, on Monday so if you haven't already um, gone out for a taste of goat make sure you do want to say thanks to Finn over at Fatty Crab who hosted myself and um, Margot and Alex of Consider Bardwell Farms last week we had some amazing goat with them so Big thanks to Finn. And we are on the line today with Mark Guanzini, one of our No Goat Left Behind farmers. Um, Mark is of Highwood Farm up in Spencer, New York. Mark, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Awesome. Great. Um, So glad to have you on the show today. Really looking forward to kind of continuing uh, the conversations we've been having around goat in in the Northeast and the world. (laughs) 
Um, so why don't why don't we start um, by getting a little bit of background uh, on you and about Highwood? You know, kind of what your what your experience um, in farming was, how you got into it, um, a little bit of the details of the farm. You know, the size, how many animals, what breeds, just kind of a general overview. Okay, well, quickly, um, we got into the business. Actually, it was my wife's initiative. Um, she grew up on Long Island, and as a youngster growing up, her family had a farm in northeastern Pennsylvania, her grandparents' farm, and they spent the summers there, and she fell in love with animals and living in rural areas. And so as soon as she got out of high school, she went to SUNY Farmingdale for a little bit and then transferred to Cornell, where she got a degree in animal science and began uh, raising animals on her own in farms that she um, found. And um, when her and I met, she had recently purchased the farm that we now run together, and I decided to stick with her and the farm rather than pursue an academic career. And we got our first goats together about 15 years ago, and it started out with just two animals. We borrowed uh, a buck and have pretty much grown the herd internally since we had one early episode where we purchased animals from outside, but mostly we raise our own uh, replacements here. It's a hill farm. The um, We have about 180 acres in total. It's about half woodlot, half pasture. Um, the herd has grown to about 80 or so breeding animals and replacement animals, and annually we kid it about a hundred, give or take twenty, um, kids in a season. Wow! So, I mean, what you didn't have a, a background in farming. So, how did I mean? How did you decide uh, on goats? And and can you talk a little bit about you know was that an obvious decision, or were you guys thinking about doing some other things? And how did the property kind of lend itself to that animal? Sure. Well, um, her back. She had. Ex- quite a bit of experience before we met in small room and she had raised both uh, sheep and goats uh, previously and so you know the decision to continue along those lines you know rested in part on her um, expertise um, as a small ruminant herds person. Um, I was enthusiastic to farm but didn't have any real personal experience you know both my uh, grandparents farmed. I'd been around farms as a kid, but I grew up in the suburbs as well. And through my life as a uh, student and in college, it just sort of bumbled around into one thing or another. But when the opportunity to become involved in this uh, project, you know, presented itself, I was very enthusiastic. But, you know, the reason we're in goats is because of of, uh, Luce and her uh, experiences more so than anything I did. Although I will say that when it comes time to deal with the animals as a person who doesn't have a lot of experience. I'm often glad that I'm not dealing with cattle yeah. and that uh, we can uh, uh, can work with the goats instead. So when you began, you said you had two goats and you guys have grown grown the herd over the last 15 years. So what... Like, like in the beginning, I'm assuming you got guys both had off farm jobs, and now, now, oh. now, what does that look like? I mean, yeah, a lot uh, of um, yeah, um, p- people that farm on our scale have to have off farm income because there's simply not enough money to be made at this level to uh, you know to support. Do um, so. Uh, I have um, have taught in the past and still do occasionally, uh, but the full time, uh, you know, the the 
off-farm income that supports us, provides for our health insurance and retirement is through the efforts of Luce, who works at the university as a technician. Uh, and I do a little teaching, have a, another small business interest, and then most of my time and when I'm doing what I want to do, I'm working on the, on the farm. So can you can you kind of take us through maybe a, a, a typical week? I mean, with, with the goats, what are the what are the things that that you need to do to, to take care of them? What's the what are the equipment that that needs to be on the farm that you're using? And and just give us a general sense of, of, of what that looks like, you know, over the course of a week or so. Yeah, well, what a week looks like depends a lot on what time of the year it is. You know, the uh, goats are seasonal breeders, and so we target our breeding to the uh, last weeks in April, first weeks in May, and we could talk about why um, later. But around that time, of course, you know, there's one set of activities that are involved. But once the animals are born through the time when they, um, well, for the rest of the year, it's just a question, you know, I get up in the morning, go to the barn, do whatever feeding is required. In the winter, you know, obviously we're providing hay for them. When the does are lactating, they're getting some uh, some uh, corn and soybean to supplement um, whatever feed they're on. In the summer from May through, it depends on when it snows, but we're still, you know, pasture grazing the animals. And so that involves, um, you know, getting them up. Uh, we use a couple herding dogs to help move the animals, and they go to whatever pasture we're in at the time. We bring the animals in every night. Um, primarily as a predation control measure. Uh, we have a lot of coyotes in our area. We've never had a problem with coyote predation, and I believe that the main reason is, is because the animals are only out during the day and we don't leave them out at night, so the local coyotes haven't developed a taste for goat yet, and that's worked out pretty well for us. But it does involve the extra work of you know taking them out to a pasture daily and bringing them back. And sometimes you know, we may go as far as a quarter mile for pasture. It just depends. Wow, and I guess we we should note too that that a lot of the farms that that we've worked with through the No Goat Left Behind project have been dairy farms where they're doing kind of a some of the animals um, are are milking a few times a day, and then they also have this other set of animals that they're raising up for meat. But at your farm, you're just doing uh, animals for meat production, correct? Yeah, we we try to avoid milking goats if we possibly can. Um, we try to let the kids do that. Um, for us, and pretty, we're pretty successful in that regard. So, yeah. Um, what what breeds are you working with on the farm? Well, the foundation stock that we had um, had dairy in their background. We've actually um, liked to keep that in the herd a little bit. Um, we buy uh, bucks that are pretty high percentage boar usually, although we've on occasion retained one of our own bucks who we felt had some you know good dairy character in it. The reason being to try to, you know, keep high milk production in our does because as soon as you have to supplement milk for a kid, your economy pretty much goes in the toilet. Um, milk replacer is very expensive. And so, you know, we're feeding the does anyway. And if they can uh, produce enough milk to feed the kids themselves, and typically we experience twins um, some triplets. We had one set of quads one time, Ooh. and it's a strain on an animal to raise two kids. It's, a, it's real hard to raise three, and in the, in the, in the cases of four, that wasn't. <laughs> she got two, and, and two of them went to other, other does. 
But when, when a doe can't raise their own kids for whatever reason, we typically try to foster those kids off on another animal so that, um, so that we have the goats raising the kids instead of us. And, um, and that's, I mean, that is different, too, than what you're going to find on, on a dairy farm because on a dairy farm, you know, they're really looking, you know, the, the product there, yeah, they're, they're looking for milk as their product. And, yeah. and so that is, um, you know, that is a big difference there is that, that the animals that they stay on to raise up as young stock are getting fed the milk replacer. What, what is milk replacer? I mean, what, what, what's in that? Well, it's, um, uh, you know, honestly, I, I can't tell you, you know, the breakdown, but it's a combination of milk proteins that have been acquired from some other source. There would be fats. They're certainly supplemented with vitamins and minerals and things of that nature. I mean, it's the, the goal of the people that produce that to as closely mimic the natural product as they can. Um, and I'll have to plead ignorance as to whether or not they attempt to put any kind of passive in, in, immune, immune, immunizing agents in there. My guess would be not. But, of course, you know, one of the purported advantages, and it's the real advantage of, you know, of having a kid on a doe right from the get-go is they get the, um, the, the disease protection from the doe in the first, um, first day or so of lactation. And then, uh, you know, the kids grow well enough on the, on, the, uh, on the milk replacer, but it's extra work. Once the kid has decided that you're its mom, you're its mom until, you know, as long as you've got it. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, having a bunch of kids that try to jump in your back pocket every time you go in the barn, it's cute for a while, but eventually, you know, <laughs> that, that can start to wear on you a little bit, too. Yeah, I um, definitely so, had that experience when we took a visit up to Consider Bardwell and we're out kind of in the pasture with some of their, their male animals. And they really, they just jump right. They're so curious, yeah. jumping right. Yeah, and very curious. Yeah, it was very cute i had like a very snow white moment but that um that the, the fun of that kind of dissipated pretty quickly yeah well you know we try to handle the animals with you know a fair bit and i spent a, quite a bit of time with them and there's a, you don't want them to be so afraid of you that you can't get near them but you know by the same token you know by nature they're a predator species they should be wary of things um, so, you know, it's, you try to draw a balance where it's reasonable to manage the animal, um, it, but you don't invoke panic every time you come around them. And, uh, you know, but so, and some are by nature a little bit more curious and, and friendly than others. And so uh, we have a pretty nice herd to, that we work with here and, and we're grateful for that. Yeah. So, I mean, so it sounds like, I mean, milk replacer, I guess we can think of like the human equivalent would be, you know, feeding, feeding your, your kid's formula or, like or yeah, yeah. It's and, powdered, you know, stuff we, we buy and, and you, you would mix it with water. And we always keep some on hand, but on a good year, we don't really use it hardly at all. And on a bad year, we will end up using it in a limited fashion because there will become reasons why, you know, a doe can't, um, you know, produce enough milk if, she, if um, you know, it, it, there's a, there are just a variety of things that, that that can cause that. You know, they could sure. develop you know mastitis or something in the middle of lactation, and then you know, the, we observe the kids. If we see somebody that looks like it's a trying to steal from somebody else, you know, then we investigate why and decide if we need to supplement it or not. Um, and uh, you know, we'll, you know, just try to keep an eye on the does and stuff. And usually, if we're, if we're going to take a kid away from its natural mother and try to get somebody else to raise it, that's something that needs to be done pretty early. Mm-hmm. Um, the does aren't that accepting of other animals unless you're, you know, 
um, you, you have a, a fairly narrow window of opportunity to do that. But um, we've been fairly successful in the times that we've tried. But every once in a while, we'll end up with a kid that we raise on a bottle. But like I say, it, that stuff's pretty expensive. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Generally, your economy goes out the window on that. Once you have to do that, you can never really recoup that cost. That cost. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, I'd love to talk and tuck into some of the kind of medical or, or and care decisions that that you have to make with the animals throughout the the course of their life. But we'll take a take a moment for a breather, and then we'll bring you back. Okay. We're back. You're listening to The Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network, and we are on the line with Mark Wanzini of Highwood Farm talking goats. So, Mark, uh, before the break, we were talking about milk replacer and kind of the first uh, the, the the first couple of days in, in the life of a baby goat. And, and you had mentioned, you know, if they're able to stay with their mother, they get these kind of auxiliary benefits from the milk. And I think, you know, what you're talking about there is... I believe they call it it's colostrum. The, That's correct. Yeah, so the kind of that there's this kind of magical window r- right after birth where the the mother is producing not just milk but this whole other kind of uh, series of things that really kind of bolster the immune system and go to support uh, the the kid in the early stages and and that's the same across all mammals, correct? Yeah, I mean there are variations within species in terms of how long. Um, you know, the window of opportunity for passive immunity from, from the mother to the young is and, and things of that nature. But in general, yeah, mammals do that. So I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the other decisions that kind of come into play with regards to, to making decisions about, you know, how you're going to raise your herd. And some of the things um, that I would like to touch on with you um, w- would be, uh, denubbing, circumcision, uh, ear tags, and and kind of what uh, what's kind of the norm in in the goat world, and and why do why do those choices get made, and kind of what do they involve? Um, so, I mean, if we're looking kind of at a chronological order, um, kind of how how some of those things come into play, and then uh, sure. also touching on. Um, you know, maybe this is a little ambitious, but uh, talking a little bit about parasite management, I mean, that's something that's come up with a lot of the other producers, but we haven't really been able to talk about what that actually 
means um, as far as taking care of the animal. So yeah, good. So well, one thing that begins actually before the the kids are born is that the herd gets vaccinated um, a month or so in advance of of kidding, and the point there is to bolster the the doe's immunity so that the colostrum that she produces is going to be enriched in the kinds of things that experience tells you you're likely to encounter, right? And then after parturition, when the, when the kid hits the ground, we generally try to be there if we can. Sometimes they're born in the middle of the night and, and, and you're not. But, again, we um, make the decision to have our animals have their kids in or near the barn, um, and that's actually a bit of issue in the industry right now. If you go to Texas, New Zealand, Australia, they're very big on pasturing in the field. And the idea is it's less labor intensive. But in a herd of 100 like we have, we have, you know, not a lot of problems with birthing, but there are some. And, of course, if the animals are doing that on pasture and they have problems, the outcome would be guarded at best and, you know, perhaps you would, you know, lose animals. You know, our goal is to try to lose as few animals as possible, you know, in goats like in humans, birthing is, you know, it's a tricky business, and sometimes you have problems that our preference is to be there. We try to make sure that the kid gets up. There's a few issues that they can have early on if you detect they're easy to deal with um, and get them nursing so that we know that the doe has claimed the kid Young does often will re- try to reject their kids. We don't tolerate that. We keep them in a pen with that kid until the mom knows who the kid is and everything is fine. And in the overwhelming number of instances, that's easy. You get the odd animal where you have to actually work at that a little bit to make that, that parent-kid bond um, work for you. Um, they, they stay in it, and we call them jugs, but they're just small pens. Um, the does get put on um, some supplemental grain at that point so that through their lactation we supplement the hay or forage that they have a little. Um, Before the kids are let out, they are ear tag. Um, It's important to be able to ID animals, and that's a relatively um, easy way to do it. You know, it's very quick. I'm sure it hurts a little bit while it's happening, but the one thing that you notice with these animals is that they're in the moment. It, whatever's happening right now is important to them. As soon as it's over, they're on to something new. So we feel pretty good about that, and we think that doing it early is better than better. doing it And that's um, essentially later. like piercing their ears. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's just a this little pliers thing. It, it takes less than a second. Um, the doe kids are then done. They're good to go. But we at that time, unless there's a reason why we wanted to save an animal for breeding, which we rarely do, um, the uh, kids get castrated. Now, we struggled over the years with a good method to do that, and there's sort of two things you can do. One is sort of semi-surgical. The advantage of it is that it's fast. It has a complication rate that we ultimately decided was a little high. Mm-hmm. The other common method is to use uh, bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem that we have with that, of course, is it's uncomfortable. Wrap a rubber band around your finger. You know, it'll quit hurting eventually, but for a while, it, you know, and then it'll, your finger will fall off. Right. Um, but, you know, for a while, that's uncomfortable. And we observe the animals. And, you know, they're walking funny for, you know, a couple of days. So we've actually recently started to inject the spermatocord with lidocaine 
before we do that, and we feel that that's been pretty successful. Um, it makes us feel good anyway. So, um, wait, so so you're injecting it with lidocaine and then you're banding, or the... That's correct. Okay, just so the lidocaine acts as, uh, you know, as... Just a, just a local de- anesthetic. Okay. Right. So... And- and why circumcise? Um, like why 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 well, castrate? Well, there's two I always reasons say for that. Uh, one is is uh, people generally like the quality of the meat better. Um, if the testicles are intact in a male animal, it's going to get gamey. Um, and the older they get, the more so that that's going to be the case. But the other more practical thing is is that these things will become reproductively active so quick that it becomes a management issue to have them in the herd because they're going to start trying to breed back. Um, by five months of age to other animals that are in the herd. And because you don't want them breeding, this is just sort of, a, of, a, of an easy way to handle, you know, that problem as well. So it's both a, what the market wants and just a, a management um, issue. The, we keep a couple of bucks on the place. They get along together just fine. But you had too many boys running around, you know, it's you kind of, I think, asking for trouble. And have you noticed, you know, one of one of the kind of conversations I've been having with a couple of the farmers is, you know, the speculation that there is some size difference between if you castrate or if you don't castrate the animals that they grow faster well, or slower will become taller. Okay, that that's a fact. That that's when they become sexually mature. The 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 sex steroid hormones. One of the things they do is turn off the growth hormone um, system. So in and animals that are castrated when they're young, eventually they'll quit growing, but it, but it's delayed. And so weathered animals are, you know, generally will 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 be taller, and you know, large. And weathered is a term that but refers typically, you know, to. Typically, weathered, they're going to market way before they're done growing anyway. Okay. So that doesn't you don't see that unless it's sort of a pet, you know, that you, that you keep around, and they can be quite big. Huh. So, so the castration happens um, pretty early on, and then four days, four four days, and then three or four days. Yeah, we. Um, what is it? The term denubbing, as far as you because know, goats sure, disbudding, disbudding. Is, that's is, how I'm like the removal of the horns. Right. Yeah. So the 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 reason why people want to remove horns is because for animals that are going to be on the farm, they can be a, be a bit of a nuisance. They, they have a tendency to get stuck in feeders. Um, if you got one animal that's got them and others that don't, they can be a competitive, you know, disadvantage. The animals can possibly hurt themselves on them. So a lot, it's sort of generally felt that it's easier to, to keep animals that don't have horns. So the only ones that this is an issue for for us are ones that we intend to keep for ourselves or that we think somebody else might want to buy and use as, as breeding stock. The animals that, that go to market, we don't. This horn, we don't disbud them. Um, that's not a, not an issue. And so here, this is another thing where, you know, our method is, you know, would be criticized because of the amount of effort that it takes. But we generally will anesthetize an animal before we take its horns off, and we do it with a hot iron. Um, it's a special tool, you, you know, that you plug in. And you get them when they're young, you know, and you burn the area around the, the, the budding horn where the, the, the growing material would be, and that if you do a good job, will prevent uh, the, the horns from growing. And 
you know, the, the problem, the reason why the use of the anesthetics for that is not widely practiced is that goats are pretty sensitive to them. You've got, you've got to be really careful how much you give them. Um, it's fairly easy to overdose a goats. A lot of vets wouldn't recommend it, especially not to people who didn't have a lot of experience with that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But for us, we can do it. It doesn't cost that much. We just like it better, so we, we do it. And, and so the animals that go to market, the ones that you're not disbudding, how, how, I mean, how big are their horns going to be, and, and what age are they usually when you're sending them to market? Well, you know, typically they're going to be, you know, five months to the less than a year. Um, if they grow fast, you know, they're ready to go. You know, we, our kids were born in, uh, in April and May this year, and they're, um, you know, the ones that grew well are gone already. Right, and we got a handful of slow-growing animals that will continue to mature, and by December, or January, you know, they'll be, you know, they'll be ready to, they'll be market weight as well. So, and it, and these guys, their horns are like three, four inches long. It's not that big of a deal, but they'll get, you know, six to nine inches long. Um, if um, if you know if you if you leave them on, and that right. starts to become an issue at feeder spaces and things of that nature. So, so we take them off the does, but that's it. So, so then, I mean, as as the animals, those are. I mean, is it, are we missing anything? I mean, is there any other kind of like uh, uh, vaccinations or kind of well, yeah, herd management? Um, the the kids. Okay. You know, they get the passive immunity from from the the, the colostrum that the, that they got from the doe. Um, but after a month or so, or a couple months, I guess, you know, you, you give them vaccines and then you boost them uh, a month or so later. And, um, and then again, the ones that are in the breeding program, you know, will annually get a vaccine before they, um, before they kid. So, so that's important. We've never had a problem, and I guess it's because of the vaccine, uh-huh. <laughs> with the kinds of diseases that you vaccinate against on, on our farm. So and these are things like tetanus and clostridium and, um, and things of that nature. Um, you know, the other two other, well, there's really three other diseases with the, with the goats that are a management problem. Um, one, two of them are goat diseases. Um, there's, they, they're susceptible to worms. Um, and the important worm that goats get is something called homonchus contorta or the barber pole worm. It causes uh, gastrointestinal bleeding and can kill the animals. So that's probably historically for sure, and in general I think probably the biggest disease problem that people face with the animals once they've grown up. And we, you could treat that with chemical wormers, which are, is commonly done. Um, there's reasons to try to avoid the use of chemical wormers. They're expensive uh, for one thing. Um, the, anim- the, the worms do develop resistance to them, and that's a problem. Trying to, to keep a wormer on hand that's effective can be a real challenge in and of itself. And so there's a couple things that people try to do to minimize the use of that. And the one that we have the most success with is that we rotationally graze to try to disrupt the life cycle of the parasite. And we use minimal wormer for goat parasites. Um, they, before they go out in the pasture in the spring, when the does are in the jugs with their babies, they get wormed once, and that's, as far as the, the goat parasites are, are concerned, that's it. For the rest of the year, 
as long as we rotate them off of pastures on a, a schedule that's shorter than the time it takes the eggs to uh, hatch in the field and become infective, then we don't have to worry about the animals becoming reinfected. And we have a lot, a lot, a lot of land, and we can leave pastures fallow, essentially. We graze them once and then try not to get back onto them for four or five months or until after there's been a, a killing frost. Okay, so the worms are coming from, so the worm, you know, the worms, the parasites that you're talking about, they, they kind of exist just in general in, well, in the, nature, or they come all, on and well, off? They're all over the place. I mean, when we first got our goats, we tried to make sure that they were as clean worms as we could get, and it didn't take long, and they were back, and I'm not sure where they came from. But, you know, if you've got these animals, the worms are just you know, co-travelers. Okay. And what you do is you try to keep keep it so that you don't get sick animals as a result. And um, the the reason why we worm in the spring when when they're in the jugs is that the, this worm goes into a hypobiotic state over the winter where it doesn't do anything to the animal, but then in the spring it will emerge if they have any in them and start to become a problem. Well, this is precisely at the time when the doe's trying to produce milk for the kid. They're under a lot of metabolic stress anyway. And so we feel that just in case somebody's got some, you know, we'll take that opportunity to try to, to knock that back. And then through the rotational grazing, we're able to keep the kids from getting infected and to, and to keep the does from becoming reinfected. Now, somebody's going to pick up something somewhere, you know, because they go pass over laneways and occasionally somebody will stop to eat. But our goal is to have our program keep the, the, the amount of parasite that's on our farm low enough so that the probability that somebody's going to ingest eggs or are, what they ingest are larvae mm-hmm. in the field is really low. And we don't have any clinical issues with that disease anymore um, we monitor the animals because I see them every day when we go to and from pasture. If somebody you know doesn't look right, you know we investigate. But mostly we feel we've got our barber pole worm problem pretty under control. So so that's good. The other one that's a real problem, especially with the kids, is coccidiosis. This is a ubiquitous um, bug. And it's very hard to, uh, you know, to, to have a herd that's free of that. Um, so, again, the advantage of driving the goats to pasture every day is I can see them from the hind end. And if I see any evidence of diarrhea in a kid, you know, we're just all over it, at treating that kid with anti, you know, coccidia medicine to, to get rid of it. And this became a problem for us as our herd began to grow. And we were kind of caught unaware because, you know, we'd never had this problem. And then all of a sudden we had tons of it. And we're going, where did this come from? Right, what's happening? And what our vet said was, well, you went from being a small farm to being a medium farm, and that's what happens. But, again, you know, with any of these disease situations, the, the trick is to catch it early and deal with it right away before it can spread around and become a problem. So, you know, we have to treat kids for coccidia every year. Some are more susceptible than others. Um, it's the kind of thing, usually if you get one that, you'll get one that gets it, and it's really hard to get them to, to give it up. You know, they'll get better, then they'll get worse, then they'll get better. But, um, but it's really just a matter of being vigilant and diligent in, uh, in, in dealing with it. And compared to the one or two, 
what I would consider really black years <laughs> about a decade ago. Uh, you know, things are, are, are pretty good. During the time when the kids are um, real young, we put a, uh, a coccidia stat in the mineral that they get that helps to, you know, to, just to keep the numbers in the place, you know, low. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, if an animal shows a, a, a tendency to, to, to become sick that way, or if their babies show a tendency to become sick that way, then they become not good candidates to breed again in the future. And you try to build in animals that are hardy and resistant to these things because different animals are more resistant to all of these diseases than others. And so through a selection process, you try to get yourself a herd that has as few problems as possible so that you can rely on you know, uh, chemical or medical treatments as little as possible. As possible. Those things are expensive. Well, yeah, and I mean, it's. I think it's it's helpful. I, it's helpful for me anyway to think about it. Like, like any population uh, of people, you know, the, there's always going to be within any group somebody who has some type of issue, and, and as populations get larger, the the kind of variety or the number will will change. And so, you know, from a public health perspective, you have kind of the management things you can do and then you have you know treatment for individuals and it works very similarly you know on a farm with with a with a group of animals um biology yeah well mark thank you so much it was a fascinating discussion and i will let our viewers know that um your animals will be uh throughout new york city this next week um if they want to visit us at www.heritagefoodsusa.com you can find out where to eat for this last week of Goattober and, and get a taste of of the animals from Highwood Farm. And Mark, thank you so much for being on the show today. And I look forward to bringing you back to talk more about some of the stuff we went over today. Uh, it will be my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. Thank you for your interest in our animals. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.